Hello, welcome to Journey On. I'm Dave Smelser. So this week, by taking a tour through a particularly profound book, we'll talk about how you might explore and find your calling at any age. You might be empowered to discover and walk into a new calling as your circumstances change. It's pretty great stuff. It's as popular as anything we've ever talked about in our online groups. So you'll hear about things like how knowing your calling might be more obvious than you think it is, how we're tempted to live out someone else's calling and how that will cost us, how we face two opposite temptations in finding our calling, grandiosity and devaluing, and about the power of finding our right-sized calling, how stories from Harriet Tubman and Susan B. Anthony and Gandhi and Thoreau and Merton and Beethoven can help unlock energy and vision towards our calling, how a four-part path might empower us to live out what we're meant to be, how calling changes over our life in surprising ways, how living out our calling can give meaning and power to our suffering and lots more. Speaking of our online groups, before we roll, I will mention that if you like the sort of journeying spirituality we talk about here, you might really enjoy trying out a weekly online group by a host around those things with folks from around the country and beyond. We now have three delightful groups. One is on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. One is on Sundays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we have a new group on Mondays during the day at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, or put another way, at 6 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, which opens it up, say, to friends from South Africa and elsewhere. So give one a try. Email mail, M-A-I-L, at blueoceanfaith.org for more information. As with all podcasts, if you like Journey On, one way you can play your part is by giving it a good rating and a brief review on Apple Podcasts so that others can more easily find and connect to what's here. Thanks. We have an email list you can connect with if you don't want to miss anything. You can sign up for it at blueoceanfaith.org slash connect blueoceanfaith.org slash connect, and then click join the list and go from there. All right, kick us off, Ryan Hood, with Let's Talk About Your Calling. So I've been in a ton of conversations about calling recently. I am sheltering in place with lots of family members for whom this is a live question. Three lost their jobs in the pandemic. Another is an incoming senior in college, and another will be a freshman. And I seem to find that I never grow up enough where this is a dead question for me. And I've had this hypothesis, which has been seeming true to me, that I'll run by you, though, of course, as with all hypotheses, I could be wrong. And that's that our calling is hiding in plain sight. We don't have to dig that deep. It's not that hard to find but that the trick is not so much identifying our calling as doing it, which will often seem uncertain and risky, and there's the deal breaker. As I've been thinking about this, I've been reminded of maybe the best book I've ever read about finding and living your calling, your vocation. It's a book by a man named Stephen Cope called The Great Work of Your Life, A Guide for the Journey to Your True Calling. I will put a link to it in the show notes. Cope is a contemplative, which you'll see ties his perspective profoundly into what we talk about here. He's Hindu, and his book is a take on the Bhagavad Gita's perspective on calling, which he thinks is at the heart of what the Bhagavad Gita is about. He refers to it in his book as not a book about being at all, but a book about doing, which is interesting. It's interesting to look at Cope's insights about calling after having spoken about this quite a lot as a pastor of a large church then full of young people. Cope uses a different word, a Sanskrit word to talk about calling, the word dharma, which is used in many different settings where that word is used. It can apply to a certain body of teaching or truth, but here he's talking about it as vocation or calling. And my wife, Grace, has often preferred kind of Christian terms to talk about spiritual things. And so initially she was a little bulky, but then she heard out what Cope meant and she said, 
Okay, that is more helpful. And here's why she said that. So in church settings, we're tempted to talk about calling with great and encouraging verses like Psalm 32, 8, where God says to us, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. That sounds like calling. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. God's going to direct us where we need to go. But the way that often plays itself out, at least preaching I've done, is you talk about calling as something one you need to hear from God, certainly something I still very much believe, but also something we're sort of um, responsible to do. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to screw it up. There's a kind of a moralistic side to finding your calling, which as life goes on, we can all feel a little bit fuzzy about, did I find it? Am I just doing what I need to do to make a living? Have I given up on it? Was that unrealistic? Was that a youthful bit of exuberance? What, the thing about Dharma, which Grace, for instance, found more helpful, was the idea that Dharma is more in terms of the key that fits your lock. It's just what works. It's what it's functionally what you're made to do. It's not moralistically or theologically what you're made to do. It's just in point of fact, what is it and how do we find it? And it turns out that Cope's contemplative side, his meditative side, the things we talk about here, is central to him figuring out what that is and what are the implications of that. And in his book, one of the really charming things we find as he looks at that from a lot of different dimensions, not only what it means to find it and do it, what it looks like from historical figures, what are the implications of it, how it might change over one's lifetime. So a broad swath of interesting stuff that he brings up. He actually helped lead a center in Lenox, Massachusetts, which is partly about finding your vocation. So he's dealt with this with many, many, many people. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to offer, as I have sometimes done in the past, rarely, but occasionally done in the past on Journey On, a sort of book report on what Cope's insights are. So you'll hear a lot of the use of the word dharma and things along those lines. You'll hear the occasional quote from the Bhagavad Gita, which to me was pretty interesting. And um, you'll get some commentary from me along the way for his quotes. But a lot of it's going to be me giving you the swath of his areas of concern, which again, in our online groups, turned out to be pretty generative for folks. So we'll see if it's true for you. So here's the first quote I'm going to give you from Stephen Cope. And by the way, some of these quotes are paraphrases, forgive me. You'd have to read the book to know which. I occasionally will point out exact quotes, but they are all from him. All right, first quote. As it turns out, most people are already living very close to their dharma, their calling, their vocation, their dharma. But they know very little about it. They don't name it. They don't own it. Their own sacred calling is hiding in plain sight. So it turns out Cope kind of agrees with my instinct that it maybe is not as hard to find what we should be doing now as we might think. Another thing from Cope. Particular dharmas, he says, can get used up. The challenge then is to know it, close the door on it, and move on to the dharma of the moment, which requires a leap of faith. So we're going to talk about this in some depth. He deals with it in more depth later in the book. But the idea that dharmas change, that calling, vocation changes as we live, and then the key is can we notice when that happened and take the leap of faith to move into the new one, I think is really a dramatic benefit from what Cope talks about. It's really helped me. Here's more. Sometimes we are, in fact, living out our dharma, but it's not as dramatic as someone else's. So we don't embrace, claim, and own it. So he uses the example, if I'm remembering, of a nurse, someone he thinks is absolutely living out their calling. They're doing what they're called to do. But it's not sexy in the way that they see with other people who are living out their dharma, and so they don't own it as their vocation. He thinks that's bad. He says, part of embracing our dharma is understanding and embracing doubt, where we can understand it's, of course, uncertain as we go forward. And then he hits his four-part prescription for finding and living out our, dhar our dharma, which he... Uh, he works throughout the rest of the book, and I have found really helpful, though I tend to kind of, as a Christian, kind of merge parts three and four. Part one, look to your dharma. 
that seems like, well, that's the point, right? I don't know what my vocation, my dharma, my calling is. How do I look to it? His point is, ah, you're going to figure it out, especially if you're a contemplative. If you're getting still behind the waterfall in the ways we've talked about, you're gonna, it's going to become obvious. You're going to know. So his point is, look to it, to do it full out. Once you know what it is, go for it. Great guns. Three and four get combined for me. Let go of the fruits and turn it over to God. So what's provocative about this is the idea that, well, we'll probably know what our calling is with a little uh, meditative work. Having done that, we should go for it. But it's going to feel kind of risky, and we're going to try to com- you know, make sure it'll go well, that it'll yield success. He says that's the thing you have to drop. Whatever your calling of the moment is, the impact of it, what it's going to mean, you have to give up. That's God's work. So in one of our online groups, we were talking about this, and a touring musicians in the group and he said, he kind of interjected and said, that was the most successful thing, a most helpful thing for me and my band partner is when we realized we were called to be musicians and we could do it full out and we needed to let go of the fruits. When we, when we were trying to figure out how to become famous, how to become more successful, it was just, it wasn't working for us. It was hard. It was unhappy. Once we decided we're just going to do this because we're going to do this and we'll find out what happens, that's what unlocked things for us. So an endorsement for the let go of the fruits perspective, although that's a biggie for most of us. So the Bhagavad Gita says it's better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at the dharma of somebody else. You cannot be anyone you want to be. So learning how to live our own truth, our own calling is so important. And we're all social people and we want affirmation from others. And we're living in a world with lots of media. So we see examples of you know, sexy, famous people doing great things and seeming to live the good life and sucking life to the marrow. And we think, I'm not sucking life to the marrow. I'm watching a whole lot of Netflix here in the lockdown. So I want to do that. And so we, are, we yearn to be something other than what we are. And the Bhagavad Gita says, better to fail at who you are than, than to succeed at being who somebody else is. It's the idea that the Bible talks extensively about the idea of covetousness or envy as being great evils. That yearning for something that we are not is not the road to God, is not the road to faithfulness on any terms. The gift, we are told, is indestructible. Fire cannot burn it. But the connection to trust in, faith in the gift, are fragile. We have a responsibility to the gift, which is God in disguise. The attempt to live out someone else's dharma brings extreme spiritual peril. We are told the gift is indestructible. Fire cannot burn it. But the connection to trust in, faith in the gift are fragile. We have a responsibility to the gift, which is called God in disguise. The attempt to live out someone else's dharma, again, brings extreme spiritual peril, we're told. This is the false self. If we live in it, it's going to hollow us out. Here's a direct quote from Cope, which I like. At a certain age, it finally dawns on us that shockingly, no one really cares what we're doing with our life. This is a most unsettling discovery to those of us who have lived someone else's dream and eschewed our own. No one really cares except us. When you scratch the surface, you finally discover that it doesn't really matter a whit who else you disappoint if you're disappointing yourself. The only question that makes sense to ask is, is your life working for you? I love that. At a certain age, it finally dawns on us that shockingly, no one really cares what we're doing with our life. And I think, isn't that the truth as we get older? And so all the more reason to be true to who we are and not to a peer group or to people we admire and want to be like, but truly to us and what we're called to do. And I think the only way to make that work is in Cope's formula, where we can look to our dharma, do it full out, and let go of the fruits. 
we let go of the fruits, we can just say, well, whatever, I'm at least living true to what I'm doing and who I'm called to be. So I find that powerful. By the way, with these quotes, I will put them in the transcript section of the podcast at its home site, which right now is at hellohoratio.com, hellohoratio.com. It will probably soon be moved to journeyon.net with a dash between journey and on. But either way, at the home site, there will be a transcript page. The quotes will be there. So he talks about failure. What does it mean to go for our dharma? And he says, we only know who we are by trying on various versions of ourselves and seeing if they fit. So you're going to fail some as you figure it out. Even if you look to your dharma and you think, I do know who I am supposed to be, and you try it, you're going to be trying on this version of it or that version of it or that opportunity until the one fits. So there'll be some failure built into his system, which I like. And here's where he talks about the two enemies of dharma, which are grandiosity and devaluing. Grandiosity in the sense of, I'm going to do my dharma full out and I'm going to be world famous. I'm sure from our touring musician friends, that's very tempting to have that sort of grandiosity. That's sort of the point. But also devaluing. Devaluing is, I got nothing. I don't have a, I don't have a vocation, a calling, a dharma. I don't have anything of that. I'm, you know, I'm just some nobody. And either of those two poles are problems. And what Cope says we are looking for is what he calls our right-sized dharma. And his example for that is fascinating to me. So he talks about the great... Christian monk and contemplative Thomas Merton, who we've talked about very frequently on this podcast, and uh, Walden Pond guy, Henry David Thoreau. And he says both Thoreau and Merton wanted to be world-famous writers. They had strong ambitions. And so they both went to New York, where in their day the intelligentsia were, and they could get in the crowd of the famous writers, and they could become part of them, and they could join them and bring their contribution. And in both cases, it totally flopped. It did not work. And kind of with their tail between their legs, they left. And they both went instead to very small spaces. So Merton went to a hermitage cell, like a five by seven room, where he was going to lock himself up forever and just be a meditator for the most part. He did travel by the end for sure, but he was known as a hermit. And uh, Thoreau, of course, went to Walden Pond, this small cabin. We'll talk more about that later. And we'll have a a very uh, powerful moment from Merton later as well. But he goes, Thoreau goes to just this tiny cabin by a lake. And by going to small places, they found their right-sized dharma. That was where they should find themselves. And I don't know if this invalidates the point. Of course, they both became world famous as a result. But it was by leaving the big city and going to a very different setting. More from Cope. By being uniquely ourselves, we hold together our part of the net that holds together the entire world. So who we are is part of the bigger story. Here's more on right-sized dharma. Thoreau knew how unheroic his time at Walden was, as we just talked about. It was very close to his home. So famously, it's like a mile from where he lived. It was not this big adventure. His mom brought him cookies every day. He teased himself to others about how unheroic what he was doing was. He said, I have traveled extensively in Concord, Massachusetts, the home where he lived. There was no attempt at heroism here, no grandiosity. From his experiment, he discovered his inner world, though. Do what you love, he wrote. Know your own bone. Gnaw at it, bury it, unearth it, and gnaw it still. So if you work what you're called to do, you do it full out, let's see what happens. Uh, he talks about, Cope talks about Robert Frost, the poet. I, I'm not going to quote this right because I don't have this in front of me, but like two paths diverge in the woods and I took the one less traveled by or something. Um, so Frost, the reason he wrote that most famous of poems was as a poet, he began to feel that choosing itself was the most important thing. The act of moving forward is what matters, which involves loss, the cutting off of possibilities. Options discarded, he writes, are usually gone forever. 
But concerning one's dharma, one should not vacillate, as if commitment itself calls forth an unseen power, that going for it will bring its own energy. We're told committing to our dharma empowers singleness of purpose. The mind that is disunited, says the Bhagavad Gita, is full of suffering. If we don't commit, we're going to be haunted by the suffering of doubt and the internal agony of division. And Susan B. Anthony becomes an interesting case study in Cope's book about this commitment, this dharma, the single-mindedness focus. And one way she takes that is she says, the most important thing is to forget self. Her success, she felt, had to be not for herself, but for the cause, for womankind. Uh, We'll get back to her in a minute. Uh, This from the Bhagavad Gita, you have the right to work, but never to the fruit of your work. Meaning, again, you got to let it go. Clinging to outcome has a pernicious effect on performance. We need to be alike in success and defeat. With being attached to what has to happen, we lose the ability to choose between what's wise and what's unwise. Uh, Cope talks about this thing, this word aspiration, a good word for him, but grasping is a bad word for him. And they seem kind of similar, right? We're grasping at some thing we really want that's going to be great, or we aspire to something. How are those different? One's bad, one's good. He says, well, aspiration brings energy and focus. And the way to tell the difference is do your work passionately, then let it go and then be free. And then he goes into another section on the book on this front, which talks about suffering and how it plays in. So he says, first, three parts here in this section of the book, let desire give birth to aspiration. Second, when difficulties arise, see the difficulties as your new dharma, as your new calling, the difficulties themselves. Third, turn the wound of the suffering, the difficulties, into light, into something good. Dharma, as I flagged before, he says, changes. Like everything in this imperfect world, the work of this moment can change on a dime. So here he has a provocative story, which might be too hard to hear and maybe isn't even right. But his provocative story is he describes a man who got Alzheimer's. And then he describes how Alzheimer's became that man's new dharma, his new calling, this horrible disease. Now, again, I've talked about this in several online groups. As you talk to them, I have to forewarn saying all of us, we probably have family members who've suffered from Alzheimer's. We are, I'm not diminishing it whatsoever. I know it's terrible. I know this might be an unlikely outcome. But at the same time, I found myself helped by sitting with it and pondering what he was saying. So here's what he says. Instead of declaring war on Alzheimer's, embrace it. Live its experience consciously. Talk about it. Investigate it. Open to the possibility, however slim, that this ordeal could be some kind of crazy initiation into wisdom. Grace, as we were talking about this in one of the groups, uh, piped up and said, who was that country singer who had Alzheimer's? Glenn Campbell. I remember that. And by the end of his, his life, he was touring, talking about having Alzheimer's and writing songs about having Alzheimer's. So he leaned into it. I think, boy, what a good example. So if there's grasping, if that's the bad thing, I need this outcome. I need this good thing. I'm going to become a, you know, an artist to become famous, or I'm going to become a, you know, a, a researcher to change the world or whatever it is. If that's grasping, there's a flip side to grasping, which is a bad thing as well, which is aversion, which is I don't want that to happen to me. I'm scared of that. So maybe in this time of the coronavirus, we think, oh, my God, I don't want to get the coronavirus. I've read enough stories about people on ventilators. It just sounds like hell. And so we're we're scared of it. Or I don't, understandably. Or I don't want poverty. I need to keep a a clear-cut income coming in. Understandable. Which of us wants poverty? And so all these things that scare us, that's aversion. And also a bad thing, we're told, which has the same downsides as grasping. So we're told when we hate something, we can't see it clearly. 
that aversion in the sense, not desperately not wanting something to happen, is called a seat in hell. It separates us from now and from others and from ourselves. We can never have a moment's peace. And then he goes on to say, you know, and sometimes we hate our aversion, which is a problem as well. So we get an aversion to aversion, and that's where real suffering lies. We think of the thing we're scared of, and then we get scared, and we don't want to feel scared, so now we're scared about feeling scared, and we get, a, we get doubled back. He says, so go into your anger and fear. Feel that in your body. Find the secret gift at its center. When difficulties arise, give yourself to them as being your dharma. So his point is, we need to be unafraid of inevitable suffering that life is going to bring. That becomes the new story, and he'll talk about what that means as we continue. So he talks about this thing he calls the night sea journey, which is the journey into the parts of ourselves that are split off, disavowed, unknown, unwanted, and cast out. We can free the energy trapped in these cast off parts and reunite with ourselves. And so as we are still to those things that scare us in ourselves, we can release energy that we've been suppressing by trying not to feel them. So he tells a story about a woman with cancer, and she asks, is that an alien intruder or some kind of initiation? And he suggests that when we have a wound like that, we have an opportunity to turn our wound into light. It's Beethoven when he realizes he's going deaf. Submission, said Beethoven, deepest submission to your fate. Only this can give you the sacrifice for this matter of service. Beethoven began to see his life as a willing sacrifice, as if he were walking by faith into his calling. He's a musician. Hearing is kind of helpful as a musician. And by the time he realized he was going deaf, he was a famous musician at that point before the deaf stuff. And so he could feel like this is the end. Instead, he leaned into it as part of the new story, and his most famous works were yet to come. Think of your own family's dharma stories, uh, Cope encourages us. So as you think about your family history, these are usually stories of the courage and character of some colorful forebear who against big odds thrived in his or her authentic calling. My father was sort of a larger, this is me, not Cope, a larger than life character in some ways who would tell stories about his impoverished upbringing and, you know, kind of amusing anecdotes about what that meant, but then about what he went to get beyond that. And he, at one point in his life, was a tremendous success. And how did he get there? Colorful stories um, against big odds how, about thriving and calling. My dad was certainly that way. And then he ties that, though, with someone not like my dad. He ties that with Harriet Tubman, the great leader of the Underground Railroad, the, the slave who escaped and led others to slaves to freedom. Oh, by the way, wonderful movie. If you have not seen Harriet from, I believe it was 2019, last year, I've seen it twice. Man, what a winner. I think you'll enjoy it. And some of the things Cope talks about are, are very much highlighted in that movie. So he uh, talks about how Harriet Tubman's way into her dharma focused on being guided by God, as St. Paul was. And so he encourages us, well, ask for God's guidance and listen for the response and then test out what you get. Harriet Tubman does that throughout the movie that we see. She had a motto as well about perseverance. Just keep going was her motto. And then here's her quote. If you are tired, keep going. If you are scared, keep going. If you are hungry, keep going. If you want to taste freedom, keep going. So you listen for guidance and then you push into it. And we're told she never had a dime to her name because even though she was making more money as her life progressed because she became a speaker, kind of a noteworthy speaker on a speaking circuit, she would just give all her money into anti-slavery causes. And so she was always very poor. But she kept just pressing into her actual calling, heedless of its consequences, trusting there would be a landing point when she got there if she kept going. Then he talks about uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who says that contemplation, the sorts of stuff we talk about in this podcast, empowers dharma, he says, because you get this skill. 
you get good at focusing your mind one direction. So it's a good road into your calling. Every time we're told we discern in this also from Gandhi, we discerningly renounce a possession. We free up energy to channel into Dharma. So this is the Marie Kondo part of our podcast. Both Gandhi and Thoreau found this to be true. So Gandhi said, one must not possess something which one does not really need. Well, obviously Gandhi lived that. Marie Kondo teaches that. Thoreau lived that, living at Walden Pond. The idea that energy is taken by possession somehow that we want to put behind us so we can just focus like a laser on where we're going. I submit that for your approval. Now we're beginning to get towards the, 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 the uh, tail end of our podcast as increasingly Cope is going to talk about aging, suffering, what that means, and where we're headed. So here's a quote. As we age, Cope writes, we will always be losing the how am I doing game, the how am I measuring up game. Old age, illness, and death heighten our awareness of the inevitable failure of the self project. But when we, th that's right, tying back to Susan B. Anthony, who said, it's not about me, it's about the cause of womankind. Back to Cope. But when we throw ourselves into our work for the world, the project of self, with all its disappointments, disappears. When we lavish our love on the world, it doesn't matter whether we succeed or fail. It's inherently fulfilling. Gandhi talks about the need to, quote, reduce yourself to zero and let God do the work, at which point we can't fail. I submit that for your approval. Seems striking to me. Now, eventually, your dharma takes you into a new land, as Gandhi's did, a land where you can rely only on God. You cross a bridge, you get suspended in the air, and only God's holding you up now. There's a faith element, which ties back to my initial hypothesis, that maybe, at least for people who are a little bit still in their spirituality, knowing our calling, our vocation, our dharma is actually not as hard as doing it. Because doing it, we recognize it's going to end up being on that Gandhi faith bridge. And that's scary. We don't know if we have the ability to just trust that there's a landing point for us if we do our dharma, our calling, our vocation full out. Back to the suffering theme, Cope writes, dharma redeems and gives meaning to our suffering and enables us to bear it. And it enables, us to bear, it enables our suffering to bear fruit for the world. Dharma redeems and gives meaning to our suffering and enables us to bear it. And it enables us to bear fruit for the world. Isn't that encouraging? The idea that this calling thing follows us throughout our life, and it changes, and the change might be caused by the suffering of a moment. But that suffering can become and should become the new dharma in a way that it gives meaning to that suffering, which then goes well beyond us to the world. I think Grace's point about saying, what about like Glenn Campbell, right? He took Alzheimer's and leaned into it and spoke about it and wrote about it and toured with Alzheimer's and sometimes would forget where he was or what he was doing on tour to bring that suffering as his new calling to the world at the end of his life. Now, here's a long quote from our friend Thomas Merton, whom I mentioned earlier. It's got a bunch of great stuff in it. I will highlight a few of the things, but it was such a winner, I just, uh, I thought, that I brought it to you in its entirety. Here's what he says. The chief source, Merton writes, of spiritual exhaustion is the selfish anxiety to get the most out of everything, to be a sparkling success in our own eyes and in the eyes of other people. We can only get rid of this anxiety by being content to miss something in almost everything we do. We can't master everything, taste everything, understand everything, drain every experience to its last dregs. But if we have the courage to let almost everything go, we will probably be able to retain the one thing necessary for us, whatever it may be. If we are too eager to have everything, we will almost certainly miss even the one thing we need. I'll stop there. There's more to the quote. Isn't that powerful? The chief source of spiritual exhaustion is the selfish anxiety to get the most out of everything, to suck life to the marrow. 
I just relate to that. I think it's part of being an American, right? I look at my own humdrum reality, particularly under shelter at home coronavirus land. And I think, am I sucking the marrow out of life? Gee, maybe the good news I can look forward to later today is I'll take a walk around the neighborhood. The same walk I take other days with my mask and I'll stay distanced. I'll see the same trees, whatever, and then I'll come home. And then there's Netflix. You know, it feels like it's the opposite of sucking life to the marrow. And boy, does that feel like I'm missing out, like I'm being cheated. Merton says, oh, by no means. It's the urge to do the opposite, to have to suck the you know every experience down to the dregs that's going to ruin your life and kill your calling, he says. If we are too eager to have everything, we will almost certainly miss even the one thing we need. Then he goes on to say, the fulfillment of every individual vocation demands not only the renouncement of what is evil in itself, but also of all the precise goods that are not willed for us by God. So we're always letting good things go that we're not going to get because it's not what God's offered us in an experience. We cannot achieve greatness, Merton writes, unless we lose all interest in being great. Our own idea of greatness is illusory. If we pay too much attention to it, we will be lured out of the peace and stability of the being God gave us and seek to live in a myth we have created for ourselves. It is therefore a great thing to be little, which is to say to be ourselves and to lose the futile self-consciousness that compares us with others to see how big we are. Littleness, seeing what is your calling in this and doing it full out and leaving all the fruits of it to God seems very much at the heart of what Merton is talking about. Here's a final quote from Cope, kind of pithy, cuts to the chase. I found it helpful. He says this, tend your garden every day, show up for your duty, your dharma, then let it go. On that note, we'll say goodbye from this week's edition of Journey On. Thanks for hanging with us. I hope you found this provocative as I did. I really have been pondering these insights on calling, and as have many of my friends. And so I hope you're receiving the gift that I'm intending you to have through it. Um, again, check into one of our online groups. And just the way I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, mail at blueoceanfaith.org, M-A-I-L at blueoceanfaith.org. And I will look forward to being back with you next time.